0: What's I mean what's a Christian to do then when they want to be an agent for good right if they want to be an agent for racial impartiality a, an agent opposing racism opposing partiality right where can they turn for advice about how to confront injustice without compromising truth
1: Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. You're listening to episode 107, I'm Jared Luchibor. In today's episode, Rev. Andrew Compton introduces us to a fascinating read on social justice, a book called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. Published by Zondervan in 2020, so a recent book, Its subtitle is 12 Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. Part of the description is as follows, drawing from a diverse range of theologians, sociologists, artists, and activists, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams makes the case that we must be discerning if we are to truly execute justice as scripture commands. Not everything called social justice today is compatible with the biblical vision of a better world, the Bible offers hopeful and distinctive answers to deep questions of worship, community, salvation, and knowledge that ought to mark a uniquely Christian pursuit of justice. Let's hear what Reverend Compton has to say about it.
0: After George Floyd was killed, um, some 8,000 protests took place across 2500 cities in the US and and many of those involved burning and looting and riots and it was really it was stunning to see after um, that whole event that even cities in other countries experienced protests and riots as well besides the uh, sheer number of protests, many people reported noticing something else was really different this time in addition to you know traditional television radio and media, social media was exploding. Um, with, with various sentiments about racism in America, um, nearly anybody who had a social media account was using it to, to make statements about race and about what was happening in, in cities all around us. You know, celebrities, uh, politicians, CEOs, um, corporate accounts from even like major companies, y- you name it. All kinds of accounts um, started posting a black square to indicate condemnation of racism, or, um, or should I say, and or they, some of them were posting statements explicitly condemning prejudice and violence against ethnic minorities. It was really stunning, um, and it was interesting to see what Christians were doing in all this too. Now, um, we we always need to remember Christians are called to be a people of compassion, right? We're uh, we're commanded in Romans twelve fifteen to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep. Luke 10, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus says, go and do likewise. That That is to say, um, Christians are called to give assistance to and, and to show compassion and mercy for those who've been wronged. And so it was it was no surprise then that in the midst of all this discussion of race over the last 18 months, that Christians have been talking um, about how their faith in Christ informs the discussion and informs their opposition to racism. What's interesting, however, is that over um, the past 18 months, a new, uh, maybe we call a new type of opposition to racism seems to have emerged, really come to the fore, right? Many Christians who uh, decided to take some time to reflect, some time to just start reading about race and racism, um, to to take stock, make sure they weren't harboring prejudice— many of these Christians actually found some some very divergent answers being given in a lot of the books they were reading or a lot of the podcasts they were listening to. Now, on the one hand, um, there were a number of books and and works that were decrying the sin of partiality. A number of writers have helpfully uh, pointed toward the fact that people of all ethnic groups— Our fellow image bearers. And and that's why chattel slavery in the US, why Jim Crow laws, why redlining laws, um, why the many sad instances of churches and and even famous theologians of the past expressing racist views or practicing partiality based on race over the past 150 years or so. That's that's why all of this was so tragic. Um, This behavior like effectively told lies about God's creation and about how God related to human beings and how God had created human beings to relate to one another. But on the other hand, uh, there were several works also decrying racism, but with a a strange new emphasis, you could put it that way. For many Christians reading these works, something felt off, right? They had words like like reconciliation or anti-racism in the title, but they were also full of discussions of things like whiteness and implicit bias or terms like intersectionality and even expressions like systemic racism. And, and while a lot of what these books said made sense, um, they also seemed to be making a number of assumptions about reasons for disparities among different ethnic groups and, and also about uh, why white people became defensive when they were accused of being racist. There was um, this idea, this so-called idea of white fragility so a lot of these books had had themes like this. Now, um, like many other people, uh, right after uh, George Floyd, I took some time to do some reading, right? I, I wanted to make sure um, that I didn't have any blinders on. You know, I know my limitations. I know I can uh, get too narrowly focused on things, right? I wanted to make sure I wasn't um, operating with, with racist assumptions. And so I purchased, for example, a collection of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Essential Writings, um, started reading those. I pulled books from the shelves here in the library at the seminary by Black theologians like Anthony Bradley and Anthony Carter. Um, but what caught me off guard was another book I pulled, uh, written by Jamar Tisby. It was his book, *The Color of Compromise*. And on the one hand, right, I was reading it, and and he he did share some uncomfortable realities about how the church has demonstrated partiality on account of race in a wide number of concrete ways. Right, it it, it was humbling to hear how something so anathema, right, to our Christian profession um, can and has crept into the church in U.S. history, right? It, books like his um, and the kinds of things he's he's drawing attention to really should give us a lot of humility uh, and a willingness to be circumspect about our assumptions and our uh, practices today. But on the other hand, the further I read, Tisby's solutions just seemed off to me, right? Rather than um, warning rather than warning white Christians of prejudicial behavior, calling them to repent and change, it, it felt like he was accusing white Christians of doing wrong in a number of areas that actually seemed morally neutral. I mean, they they, they looked like true matters of adiaphora, right? Things that are indifferent. For example, um, he seemed to indicate... That it was wrong when white people move to areas that are not ethnically diverse enough. That that's actually a wrong thing, indeed a racist thing to do, or that it's um, it's wrong, for example, if white people um, aren't seeking out and patronizing uh, what he called minority-owned or minority-led businesses and organizations. Now, of course, even in this, there I think there is definitely something to consider here, right? I mean, people can be in sin for these reasons. If they're making these choices because they're they're showing partiality on account of race, right, when they fail to live consistently in light of their belief that all people bear the image of God, they, they can be in sin in these ways. But Tisby seemed to be racializing all kinds of different decisions. And and it seemed like decision after decision was being cast as at least racially suspect. Now, of course, Tisby was writing a book about race, so it kind of made sense that he'd be focused so intensely upon issues of race, but still something seemed off about how he was handling the topic. Um, As I was reading it, I felt like the label racist was being applied to far too many things. Far too many things seemed to be examples of being complicit in racist structures or systems. And his whole framing of um, of fighting racism was being treated as something more like a worldview. Now, I'd been um, hearing terms like critical theory and cultural Marxism for several years at this point. Um, I felt, though, like I was finally seeing how these theoretical um, academic models had kind of seeped into the water system because Tisby was working out of a uh, a critical race theory worldview overlay, right? It's not that he he wasn't citing scripture. It's not that he wasn't uh, citing theology, and it's not that he wasn't appealing to distinctively Christian themes in promoting impartiality. But Tisby's way of framing the biblical and theological approaches to race really seemed to be shaped by critical race theory. Something has happened to our thinking then in the West, and this is why. So much recent literature about race and racism, even Christian literature about race and racism, frankly, why so much of it can use terms like decentering whiteness or checking your privilege, or implicit bias, and find that Christian readers not only understand what all this means, but even kind of instinctively agree to it and think, yeah, this is correct. And so in the past um, 18 months then, since the awful murder of George Floyd, Christians seeking to honor our Lord Jesus Christ have had their thinking on race and equality shaped not simply by scripture and theology, but by a particular hermeneutical approach. Um, a particular uh, model of theology, one that is really shaped by a range of postmodern critical theories. Now, in the last 18 months, I've um, read a number of books that condemn racism, uh, but are at the same time uh, quite critical of critical race theory. Um, from a Christian perspective, for example, uh, Vadi Bachum's book *Fault Lines*, also uh, Owen Strand's uh, book *Christianity and Wokeness*, right? These books have offered sociological, theological, and biblical critiques of works, even works like like Um Tisby's. From a non-Christian perspective, um, there's a number of books doing the same thing. Uh, for example, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's book, Cynical Theories, which, as you probably tell, it's, a, it's kind of a pun on critical theory. They're calling it Cynical Theories. Uh, John War- McWhorter's uh, recently published book, I think only in the last uh, week or and a half it, it arrived, his recently published book, Woke Racism. There's a number of other titles um, that have pushed back against critical race theory, um a lot of them using categories and tools of classical liberalism by the way i think it should be noted that classical liberalism uh, is itself one reason why martin luther king jr's writings condemning racism and fighting for equality sounds so different from authors like Jamar Tisby or from Ibram X. Kendi or from Robin D'Angelo, right? Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was working out of a classical liberal model of thinking, whereas these these recent approaches to race um, are are parting ways with that model. Uh, King's famous quote, you know, where he said, I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That quote, is actually being viewed as a racist quote now um, by a number of these so-called you know anti-racist approaches. There's also a whole score of other writers who have been writing about race in other venues. Um, Bakham warns against uh, what he calls ethnic gnosticism. Right, it's this what what Bauckham sees as the view that um, that he as a black man uh, somehow has special insight based solely on his skin color. And yet it should be noted uh, that there are a number of black writers and black scholars who actually see critical race theory as responsible for a setback in America's ongoing quest for a more uh, consistent racial liberty and justice for all. For example, Glenn Laurie or Jason Riley, uh, Coleman Hughes and and Carol Swain, Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, to name just a few. Uh, There's there's a number of writers um, who are appealing uh, to classical liberal categories in pushing back against critical race theory. The thing is though the mainstream entertainment media is giving many people the impression that the only way to fight against uh, against racism is to adopt critical race theory informed methods and viewpoints. And well what's I mean what's a Christian to do then when they want to be an agent for good? Right, if they want to be an agent for racial impartiality, uh, an agent opposing racism, opposing partiality, right, where can they turn for advice about how to confront injustice without compromising truth? Well, that brings us um, really to the main point then of this whole episode. Right, In answer to that question of where to turn, I've found Thaddeus Williams's book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Uh, it's subtitled, 12 Cre- Questions Christians Should Ask About Social Justice. Um, published in 2020 by Zondervan Academic, I have found this to be a gem of a book. I um, I think it's really one of the most sound, thoughtful, instructive, and accessible books on this topic for Christians. And it's it's turned into my go-to volume. When when people ask me if I have any book recommendations on race, without hesitation, I point them to Williams. So, in our remaining time, I'll try to give something of like an introduction to, and overview of, and and sort of a review of of this really helpful book. Now, in terms of its format, um, the book is intuitively organized. It contains uh, like four main parts. Um, Each main part has three chapters, and each main part I think can be boiled down to a part on theology, a part looking at community, a part looking at sociology, And finally, a part looking at epistemology, like how we know things and and understand truth. Although I I should point out, he does sort of interweave these things uh, all throughout. It's it's a very, um, very organic reading book. Now, each main part contains three chapters, as I said, and each chapter is titled with a question. Uh, That kind of helps to frame the way in which the book is helping readers understand something specific that's being claimed by social justice theories. And what's more, each chapter is broken down into smaller subsections with really helpful subtitles. I mean, I know it's funny to say that, but that's kind of an art in it itself to know when to subdivide a chapter and how to write those subtitles. I think the book has done a very good job of that. It's helpful, too, is so that um, right? some readers can only cover a few pages at a time, and this gives them smaller chunks that they can work through. Uh, they're all very compelling. Now, uh, each chapter in Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth ends with a short biographical piece by a range of different people who know the author. And what these do is typically they tell the story um, of an individual who had been committed to critical race theory or other analogous um, social justice models. They'd been committed to it, but they found those approaches unable to make good on their promises. And in response then, these different people returned to more traditional uh, theological and biblical language and formulation, and have been able to more effectively now uh, confront injustice. So it's a neat feature uh, to each chapter, a neat point of application. The book also ends with an epilogue that has kind of a chart spelling out 12 differences between a truly biblical form of justice and the so-called justice being proposed by critical theories today. Um, and then it even goes on to contain an additional uh, seven appendices which deal with particular topics all swirling around the debate um, about race and justice today. You could almost view these appendices as sort of like a, a mini-glossary or even a, a primer of some of the hot-button terms and issues. Well, in a sort of introduction-slash-review-slash-promotion of a book like we're doing here today, whatever you want to call this, uh, we can't talk about everything. I mean, I guess ultimately my hope is that our listeners are going to find all this interesting and get a hold of the book and read it. But I do think there's a couple of things we can talk about that will help our listeners get a sense of, of some of this book's strengths. Right? Every book has some weaknesses, but I, I, I really felt that confronting injustice without compromising truth is exceptionally strong. I mean, the... <laughs> I guess the only weaknesses I thought it hurt had were quibbles, like I thought the cover was a bit wonky. Um, what I'll do is draw attention to, to three things that stood out to me in the overall presentation. Um, I'll single those out. So first, I think Williams has done us a good service by giving us useful terminology to use in describing the Bible's version of justice and contrasting that with the version of justice that's being promoted by critical theory and other progressive movements today, okay? He, he labels the Bible's view as social justice A and the progressive view as social justice B. So, you know, again, a label, social justice A, social justice B. Not everybody likes to do that. that some people um, don't feel the word social uh, can be reclaimed. For example, Vadi uh contrasts social justice with biblical justice, and part of this is because the adjective social well, it's kind of a redundancy, um, but, but another part of this is because the language of social justice has become so strongly associated with progressivism, and also it's been exploited linguistically by postmoderns. And so, in this sense, someone like Vadi Bauckham feels that it's simpler to just avoid the term. Social justice is the bad thing, biblical justice is the good thing. Williams, however, retains the term because he does not want to concede the fact that the Bible is concerned with justice, with a necessarily social, interactive form of justice. In fact, he thinks it's the progressives that have begun to move away from actual justice with their critical approaches. But Williams is trying to give us something here. Uh, that hopefully can bring different groups together to discuss the issues. So on page 5, he writes this, Hopefully, Christians across the political spectrum can unite around the fact that not everything branded social justice is social justice. When Antifa and the American Nazi Party both consider themselves bastions of social justice, most can agree that there are forms of social justice that go too far. So let's call the kind of justice we should seek social justice A, and the kinds we should not social justice be. So, of course, in the rest of the book, Williams is going to go on to show, like, where the boundaries are between these two, um, these two types of social justice. And in his epilogue, as I said, there's the ch- there's the the chart which very um, helpfully and visually contrasts the two views as they relate to each of the twelve chapters of the book. So first thing that I found really beneficial was, was his terminology of social justice A and social justice B, especially in being a point for uh, people to come together to discuss these issues.
1: Stay tuned for part two of Reverend Compton's review of Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, where he looks at the author's assessment of the gospel question and social justice, and what this book may even be saying to conservatives. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable. I'm Jared Ruchibor. Till next time.